Good morning. Glad that you're here. It's been said over and over again today already, but uh, we do mean that. We're glad that you're here. Um, and I've enjoyed worshiping with you this morning. If you have your Bible, open to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Well, for the last two weeks, we have been in our Christmas series titled Manger Things. Uh, and if you haven't been here for that uh, or haven't caught it on the podcast, then basically what we're doing is we're taking this, this series, this series based off this Netflix show, Stranger Things, and we're kind of loosely playing on some of the, the atmosphere, some of the scenes from that show. And we're tying it into what we're talking about in the, in the birth of, of Jesus. And now then, uh, if you are a Stranger Things fan, you'll be excited to know that on Friday it was just approved for season three. So if you like it, there you go. Season three has been approved as of Friday. Well, it's funny when you preach a series about Stranger Things because Stranger Things begin to happen. I was in my office early this morning, kind of getting ready, going through this. You know, I've already been through the preparation. Now, I like to try to just kind of read through this, through my sermon out loud one time so I hear what it sounds like as it comes out. And that helps me to edit how I need to. And I'm talking away and I'm talking about the upside down and how strange it is and how scary it is. And then all of a sudden, out of the silence, I hear, Dad! I turn around and Miles is right behind me. Like to scared me to death. Well, earlier than that, at 5 o'clock, I got up to go to Dunkin' Donuts, which is what I do every Sunday morning. I get up, I go get a cup of coffee, that kind of clears my head. I'm back in my office by about 5.25, and I'm, I'm to work, and I'm working. Well, I, I, I go outside, and I'm stepping down the, little, the, the two little steps down into my carport, and I look, and I see something. There's a beautiful full moon out. Uh, if you were up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you saw it. If you weren't, then, you, sorry, you, weren't, you just didn't see it. But it was really bright. And so I see something. I don't know what it is. And I get down there, and there's a raccoon staring me right in the face. And he's looking at me like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm going to ask you the same thing. You know, and so he won't move. He starts, like, coming over to talk to me. And I was like, come on, man, I need my coffee. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. So I get a broom and just try to gently nudge him away, and he's growling at me. Finally, I get him to go away. But it's like you start talking about stranger things, and then all of a sudden these, uh, these scary things start to, to happen to you. Well, as we've said for the last couple of weeks, the show centers around these, though, these four boys who are into sci-fi, they're into nerdy stuff, they're into Dungeons and Dragons and Star Wars and big, huge brick walkie-talkies and all of those things. And if you'll remember, or if you've seen it, you'll know that in, in chapter 1, the smallest of the boys, Will Byers, is abducted by a creature that resides in this, uh, this place called the, the Upside Down. And the, the rest of season 1 is trying to find Will and trying to get him back from the upside down, trying to, to rescue him. 
And so his friends and the police chief and his mother and, uh, and, and several other people are in the process of trying to, to pull him back. Well, as I've mentioned several times already, the connection that I am most intrigued by is the idea of the upside down. And we've looked at this definition the last two weeks. We'll look at it again today. The upside down is an alternate dimension existing in parallel to the human world. It contains the same locations and infrastructure as the human world, but it is much darker, colder, and obscured by an omnipresent fog. It is a corrupted and decayed form of the real world. And it's right there, that last line of that definition, that we've sort of drilled down on over the last two weeks. As we looked at chapter 1, the beginning, and as we talked about chapter 2 last week, the upside down, because as I think about what the upside down is, and as I read in Scripture our story, I see that the upside down and the fallen state of the world kind of have a, a parallel. Because we know from the Bible that God created the world to be a certain way, right? His design was perfection. It was Eden, and Eden means, if you remember, Eden means what? God's delight. And what really delighted God was not so much the animals and the trees and the foliage and all of those things, and they were nice and they were beautiful, but what really delighted God was that He was in relationship with His greatest creation, and that was mankind. That was human beings. That was the one that when he finished creating, he said, it's not just good, it's very good. And I think that's what God delighted in. That he would walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That he would spend time conversing with his creation daily, every single day. But we know what happened, sin entered, and now we have this, this corrupted form of the world everything is corrupted so last week in chapter 2 the upside down we saw that even though God sent Adam and Eve away that he sent them out of the garden and, and let them die he still wanted to be in a relationship with his people and so he called Abraham to form a nation the nation was called Israel and what we saw from Isaiah 49 6 is that Israel's job was to be the light of the world they were supposed to be the light for all of the other nations and they were supposed to be the ones that pointed people toward God pointed people to his his way and and, and his plan but before long what happened they began to look around at all of those other nations. And they began to be envious of their culture and what they had. And what they had, what these other nations had, that Israel did not have was what? Does anybody remember? A king. Yeah. And so they went to Samuel and they said, give us a king. And Samuel said, you don't want a king. Because a king is going to force things on you. He's going to force your sons into the army and he's going to take your daughters and they're going to have to work in the palace and he's going to take your flocks and he's going to take your grain and he's going to take your money. He's going to tax you. 
You don't want this. But they kept persisting. And so God told Samuel, it's not you they are rejecting. They are rejecting me as king. And he said, go ahead and appoint a king over them. And so Samuel, knowing that's not the way to go, knowing that's not best for Israel, he does what God tells him to do. God appoints a king over Israel. King Saul. And the experiment starts out okay. But Saul kind of gets in trouble a couple of times. One of them's really kind of weird. But he gets himself into trouble. And then he's removed as king. And then David is anointed king. And David is important because everything we do here comes through David's line. And we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. And David starts off as a good king, but in time, David is distracted and he too gets sucked into the upside down. Corruption takes over and he makes horrible, horrible choices. Like looking at another man's wife and in a moment of lust bringing her to the palace and sleeping with her and impregnating her. And if that wasn't bad enough, he tries to cover it up with deception and drunkenness. And when that doesn't work, King David, king of Israel, who is supposed to be the light for all mankind, orders a hit on Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, who would not dishonor his king is dishonored by his king, David. David dies, Solomon becomes king. Solomon, considered at one point the wisest man in the world, but guess what? It's one thing to have wisdom, it is another thing to use wisdom. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about? There are a lot of us like that. There are a lot of people that you say, man, you know, you are so wise. And then you say, why don't you follow your own wisdom? You know, I mean, you, you have this wisdom, why not use it? Well, that was kind of what was going on with Solomon. He got distracted. Okay? He was distracted by what was going on around him. The upside down totally changed his perspective, and he forgot who he was. He ended up being not so great of a king. Well, then there was just this succession of kings, and then there was infighting, and so Israel split into Israel and Judah. And it said that the kings did evil in the Lord's eyes, and they led Israel and they led Judah further and further and further into the upside down. And so God raised up these messengers he raised up prophets who were sent to warn Israel and Judah to change their ways and to, and to turn back to God. But Nehemiah tells us that they didn't listen. They didn't listen to the warning. And so they killed God's prophets. And they took God's law and they just discarded it. And so what happened is God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. 
and the Babylonians. And in 586 B.C., they laid siege to Jerusalem and absolutely destroyed it. Remember what, what Jeremiah says. said he burned the Lord's temple. The house of God is burned. And God allows this to happen. That's how bad things were. Can you imagine? That's how bad the corruption, the greed, the distraction was. That's how far into the upside down they were that God said, we got to burn everything out. And so Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come in and they destroy the Lord's temple. They destroy the king's palace, all the houses of Jerusalem, even the great houses, the whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. That's what the upside down did. That's what losing focus caused them. That's what happened when they decided to give up their distinctiveness of God being their king and said, we want a human king. When they chose not to listen to the warning of Samuel, the prophet. Instead, they chose their own path. And the own path, that own path led them further and further and, and further away. But as we saw last week, even though Israel and now Judah had gone off into the rails of the upside down, God wasn't content to let them be obliterated there. And so He left something that Ezekiel and Micah call a, a remnant. He left this, this small group of people this small group of, uh, of Hebrews in Israel and in Judah through which he is going to enact some stranger things. Things that are pointing somewhere. Things that are pointing to someone off in the distance. Now, I wonder why I might be recapping this every week. And the reason is, is simple. The reason why I'm spending so much time each week recapping this story is so that we don't forget that it is a story. Okay? Scripture, it's not just these different books and these different sayings that were written by these different people. I mean, it is those things, but it is all part of, of God's story. But it's not only God's story, it's the story of Jesus. It's the story of God's people, and it's not just God's story and God's people's story and Jesus' story. It's also very important for us to locate ourselves within this story. You see, that's why I keep coming back to this. Because when you read the Bible, you need to know that you're reading about your people. You're reading about yourself. We are God's people. This is, this is our Story. This isn't just something we just come and, and, and learn about. This is who we are. We are this story. So now, with no further delay, let's get into chapter 3, Advent. So the question is, who is it that they're waiting on? Who was coming, and why was somebody coming? God's people are in captivity because of their 
refusal to turn to God and trust in his plan. And it's then that Isaiah begins to prophesy. What's going on in chapter 8 is that Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is getting ready to take over, getting ready to take Judah captive, God's people. And so Isaiah begins to write in chapter 8, verse 16. And what you see in chapter 16 and 17, and then starting in verse 19, all the way down through 22, is you see the difference between the remnant who is going to stay faithful to God and the rest of the nation who have hardened their heart and are choosing to stay in the upside down. To the remnant, Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal up the instruction among my disciples, the remnant, those remaining faithful. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. What he is encouraging them to do, what he is speaking over them, is that, look, there's all kinds of distraction, there's all kinds of corruption going on around us, but for those that remain faithful, we're going to seal everything up. We're going to seal it with inside ourselves. We're not going to forget who God is. We're not going to forget who we are supposed to be, and we are are going to remain faithful. We are going to be the remnant that waits upon the Lord. But then he is also anticipating a period of of gloom and, and darkness for the rest of this hardened nation that is choosing the upside down over God's remnant, over waiting for God. In verse 19, he says, Here I am with the children... The Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their gods? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not not speak according to this word, There will be no dawn for them. In other words, what he is saying is that these things that you're messing with, these mediums, this spiritualist stuff, this, uh, uh, what's what's the word, the uh, necromancy, necromancy, however you talk about that, dealing with the dead, all of that stuff, all of that stuff is just going to lead you further and further and further into despair and darkness. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they will become enraged. And looking upwards, they will curse their king that they asked for and their God who they abandoned. They will look toward the earth and they will see distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. affliction, And they will be driven into thick darkness. They'll be driven further into into the upside down. But then he starts talking about something else. Then he starts talking about something that is going to come to the remnant from this remnant. In chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that. 
of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On the living on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now then pay attention right here. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. And his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. These are the words that Isaiah speaks to the people. He's saying those of you that are going to choose the upside down, those of you that are going to choose the way that is not of God, this is what you're headed for. More darkness, more turmoil, more despair. But there's something coming. There is a victory coming because to us a child has been born. This is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And he's saying a child has been born. Isaiah is speaking of the one who is called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and and Prince of Peace to to people who hear. uh, He's speaking of the one who will restore Israel's hope to God's people. He is speaking of, of, of Jesus. John Mark Hicks says that this child will be born in darkness, but he will also be the ray of hope in that darkness. Have you noticed the theme of hope that has been running through the morning? As Tom read to us the first Advent reading, lit the first candle of Advent, which is all about hope. Right here in the midst of all this turmoil and all the suffering that Israel has endured, in all of this darkness of the upside down, there is a ray of hope. And it is that the son, this child, has been born to us. There's this ray of hope. As as Jeffrey walked us through communion and he talked about the hope that we have through Jesus. This is what Isaiah was talking about. This hope that is going to come through this, through this, through this remnant. To people who, who hear the announcement and see or believe in the birth of the child, this son is wonderful counselor and mighty God and, and prince of peace. 
The child will reign as a wise visionary with a goal. A powerful and effective ruler, a just and peaceful ruler, and a faithful lover who will never abandon us. This child, this child is not only a gift to Israel, this child is a gift to us as well. He is the one who will stride across the world stage as Isaiah presents the event with an expectation of what he will achieve. As wonderful counselor, he's the one who is able to make wise plans. He is a a ruler whose wisdom is beyond human capabilities. He is mighty God, the title of the Lord himself, as, as everlasting father. He is the benevolent protector. And that That right there is the job of a king. It is to be the benevolent protector of his people. And what he is saying is, as as everlasting father, Jesus will protect his people. He portrays Jesus as king, as prince of peace. He is the ruler whose reign will bring about peace because the nations will rely on his decisions. The king will be divine and he will bring peace. This is the hope that Israel, that Judah, that the remnant is waiting on. To bring them out of this oppression. To bring them out of the darkness of the upside down. And story after story in both scripture and among the nations. People have found hope in the birth of a child. The hope that another would come and would be the light in the darkness. The one who will pull Israel out of the upside down. This anticipation, this is the advent. Advent, it really just means the arrival or the, or the coming it's about anticipating something or, or expecting something. You know it's coming and you are waiting on it to get here. That's where the people are. And that's what, what the Jews did. They awaited on the Messiah, the one who was going to, to bring change to everything. The one who was going to reverse all of the injustice, all of the oppression, all the pain, all the suffering and sorrow that Israel has endured. They anticipated the Prince of Peace. They're waiting on on, on His arrival. God's people looked forward to the Savior coming. That's what happened in that first advent. As, As Christians, we prepare for celebrating the birth of Jesus by remembering this longing that the Jews had because advent anticipates the arrival of Jesus. And so as we enter this season of advent, it's a time of of hope. And so if you're not familiar with what that is, if, you, if you've not come from a more liturgical or, or high church background, like, like me, I'm not from a liturgical church that really focuses on the, the Christian calendar and those kind of things, well, you might be wondering, you know, what is Advent exactly? And maybe you, you've heard the word, but you're not really sure what it means in the, in the context of the, of the church. Well, as far as the, the calendar goes, Advent is a, a season in the Christian year that lasts for about four weeks. It begins four Sundays before Christmas and ends on Christmas Eve. So today, 
December 3rd is the fourth Sunday out from Christmas Eve. Today is the, the first Sunday of Advent. The Christian season of Christmas actually begins on Christmas Eve, and it lasts for 12 days. Imagine that. Ending on January the 6th. But the time before Christmas is Advent. And it is a season of anticipating the birth of Christ. And so that's why over the last couple of years we've decided to make more of a focus on this time. Because during Christmas, what do we anticipate? Gifts. Right? Shopping. Overeating. Company. Being stressed out. Having to clean the house. Having to put up with people that stay a little bit longer than you wanted them to. Okay? Is that really not what Christmas is to a lot of people? I mean, that is what we do in December, is it not? Jeffrey mentioned commercialism. So many times that's what Christmas is boiled down to now. Is it not? And in a lot of ways... It reeks of the upside down. Because it's corrupted this time when we should be anticipating the birth of, uh, of Jesus. That should be the most important thing, should it not? That we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, yet when, not even Black Friday, when Thanksgiving Day hits like 12.35 p.m., Christmas commercialism goes into full effect, right? And we spend days and days and hours shopping and spending and getting and grabbing. Now, that we intend to give a lot of that away, and that's great. But we also anticipate getting. But it distracts us from what is most important, and that's that a Savior was born. And so commercialism, in a lot of ways, is like the upside down. If you've paid attention, if you've watched season two, you know how the, uh, the vines, they kind of grow and they kind of pull you? That's kind of like what this stuff does the commercialism that we get so wrapped up in that distracts us it pulls us it traps us it can suffocate us this is the reason why we're making an effort over the last two years to talk about advent because we're perfectly fine talking about shopping we need to be perfectly fine talking about the anticipation of jesus and using a word that we're not totally used to using. But it helps us to anticipate the arrival. The Hebrews looked forward to the coming of the Savior as Messiah. The first advent. Christians prepare for celebrating the birth of Jesus by remembering their longing for Jesus. 
Practically, Advent reminds us not only to think of the first Advent, but it reminds us to look forward to His next return every single day. The, the second Advent. In Advent, we're reminded of how much we ourselves need a Savior. It's in this season that we keep both Advents of Christ in mind. The first that took place in Bethlehem and the second that is, that is yet to come. Because the birth of Jesus is our hope. Because not only to Israel and Judah has a child been given, a child has been given to us as well. In the, in the midst of the darkness, whatever shape that darkness may take, God gives a child who embodies hope. And eventually wars will cease and injustice will not last. Oppression will come to an end and death will not win. Hope dispels despair and empowers life. The upside down will be reversed. So in this moment, I want us to to just pause to consider the hope and the anticipation that we have because of Jesus. I want us to, to keep that in mind. The Prince of Peace who will rescue all of mankind from the upside down. And so as we go from here and, and we anticipate next week, I want you and I want myself, I want us as a, as a body, as a people to commit right now to spending some time dwelling on the anticipation of Israel and their longing for the advent of Jesus. Because where we are in the story right now, in chapter 3, He's coming. But now 400 years of silence begin. And I hope you'll join us next week for chapter 4. The silence is broken. Let's pray.